CoinRobe Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRobe Plus at CoinRobePlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinRobe Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. It's that time again. The Coin World Podcast is back. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Larry Jewett. You know, and one of the questions we often get when we go to shows, and that is, you know, where do you guys find your guests and how do you come up with the different subjects and all that? Well, you know, we rely a lot on the fine folks that have listened to this podcast and make their suggestions. And we appreciate the fact that you make those suggestions for us and allow us the opportunity to offer a wide variety. We've got a great show in store for you here today, as we've had a recent suggestion to talk about a subject that's very, very special to all of us out there because it's exciting. We talked earlier about the fascination of the uh, national banknotes, and there's there's fascination that goes involved with the things that as a kid, especially we talked about pirates and, you know, treasure and all that. But, uh, you know, that that's still fascinating here today. In fact, you, you know, we think back about 400 years even, you know, so uh, we're going to have a great guest in store. Jeff, you did a lot of work to get our guests lined up. Hey, yeah, uh, Carol Tedesco is, uh, you're going to hear from her in just a few minutes. Um, I've always been fascinated by shipwreck treasure. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s when the Atocha treasure was really a big deal in the news and in, um, you know, like magazine articles and other things. And, And so I that was one of the things that drew me to coins and that that fascination with the history and the shipwrecks and all that. Well, I found out uh, through a mutual Facebook friend that she was an expert and had authored these other small books. Uh, I'll give you that. But these little books on uh, shipwreck treasure and Spanish colonial coins. And so I thought, you know what, we should talk to her because uh, here's somebody who's uh, not knee deep in the in the hobby. She's literally underwater in it. Um, she's in over her head. Ha ha ha. Oh boy. But um, but man, was it fun. And um, then then I come to find out that uh, a friend of mine from college uh, who lives down in Key West knows her very well. Says he's known her since he moved down there. Uh, so small world. Uh, someday I would love to get down there and. Uh, go to the Mel Fisher Museum and go see some of the, um, you know, the 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 Atocha wreck was discovered years ago. You'll find that out in a bit. But there's still all sorts of treasure being explored and looked for, searched for today. And there are divers that are going out there in season um, several months a year, still looking for other shipwrecks. And so I'd love to go be party to that. I'm not so sure. I want to go diving. I'm not, if I can't stand in it, I don't want to swim in it sort of thing. I'm not really a swimmer, <laughs> but, um, but we'll see, you know, I, I could maybe get, get down there and get wrapped up in the moment and uh, say, let's, let's do this all in. And I'll, I'll uh, plop backward over off the, the bow of the boat and uh, away we go. Who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, it, you owe it to yourself to go down into the Keys because, I mean, I've had very limited, I did not get the opportunity to see many of the things that were down there in my very brief visit down to the Keys. But fortunately, I'm only a four-hour drive away and could go down there sometime. And it's, of course, on the bucket list to go down there and see more about that. And it's so fascinating to know that there's so much being in Florida. You've got the plate fleet, the 1715. You've got the, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the, the Straits of Florida down south there. And, uh, you know, Carol's been uh, fortunate enough to be involved with uh, wrecks that have occurred around the world, though she may not have actually gone to there. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on here. But the fascination side of things here, just another element of this hobby that we have. I mean, I don't have any shipwreck coins yet i got to get over to, to dan sedwick and get that taken care of someday but i'd love to have that and then you get into the uh you get into the uh well should you have this should this be an artifact that should be uh, put in a museum or should you have them to your collection i don't want to go down that path that's some other day some other time you started to say something and i cut you off but go no, ahead I, I, yeah I, I will say about your last thought there um there's so many so much of this stuff has been found. I, I don't know that that can, uh, you know, there's a museum big enough to hold all of it. But since you want to go down there and I want to go down there, let's go down before the fun show and get Mr. Amos to pay for it. <laughs> I don't know that he's listening today, but probably will be. So uh, let's see how we can hide that as far as expenses go. Let's see. What can we what can we call that? Research. That's right. Research is yeah. always a, a yeah. Um, podcast research but anyway yep, that's it um, we'll have to we'll have to sleep in the car but still <laughs> hey whatever uh you know I, I, there's there's so much to explore in this hobby and that's just one uh that would be one facet of it i um i do find it interesting though when i look back at this week in numismatic history that there's something that's really sort of related to our discussion later because that was on february 25th 1675 that was when a royal warrant was issued authorizing the mexico city mint to strike gold coins and uh, as you'll hear with uh, the interview with carol in a bit uh, the spanish colonial coinage is such a fascinating era area and um it's there's all these nuances to it she explores that in some of her books uh she talks about the a gathering that is scheduled for uh, June and July, the end of June, early July this year uh, in Santo Domingo, um, Dominican Republic. That's an international consortium of historians and researchers and all that. We actually, I had a story about that in the March issue of Coin World to let people know about that event. We, uh, She mentions it there in the interview in just a few minutes. Um, I think it's interesting, like I say, that this week in numismatic history is is one tiny little slice of that much larger story. It's a very uh, large story, fascinating story. There are volumes and volumes and volumes of books on uh, the topic, whether that's you know the um, the potency stuff, the you know Dan Sedgwick stuff. Uh, Sedgwick has published the um, Practical Book of Cobbs. I mean, there's there's so many layers to this, and um, we just had a blast exploring a few of them with Carol in a bit. So that that to me it was uh, so appropriate that 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 little slice of numismatic history 
was uh, happening this week back in 1675. Gosh, um, a few years ago. Yeah, just a few years ago, as a matter of fact. But uh, I'm going to put a plug in for Carol's books. You got to get a hold of them, too. And we'll talk about those coming up a little bit later on, too. I I had the opportunity to acquire those books, and uh, they certainly need to be part of your numismatic library. What about uh, this week in Coin World history? So, yeah, uh, we are looking at the February 27th, 1985 issue. 1985 was, uh, I was under the impression that was the year that the Atocha was found. And um, I, I'm, you know, not that I trust Wikipedia um, too much, but it 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 gives a, um, it references a date. Yeah, that, that's when it was found. Much of it was found in um, 1985. They, somebody messed up and said there was a lawsuit resolution in 1982, which how can you have a lawsuit resolution before the Rex found? I believe that's a typo. The lawsuit resolution was in 1992, I guess. But anyway, so 1985 was chosen because that's the year the Atocha was mostly recovered. Uh, The story, the big story in Coin World this week was the uh, a proposal to extend the American Arts Gold Medallion Program uh, 10 more years. The lead of the story says this program uh, of the United States Mint may not be in it at an end uh, then because Iowa Representative Jim Leach introduced legislation seeking to extend the program another 10 years. For those who don't know about this, uh, from I want to say 79 to 84, somewhere in there, uh, the U.S. Mint, maybe it was 80 to 84, for, for three or four or five years, they struck half ounce and one ounce gold medals. This was at a time when owning gold coins in the U.S. was legal, but you know the South African Krugerrand was um, was there was activity to to keep it out of the market because of apartheid. Um, there was no domestic U.S. coinage product. Certainly, the American Eagle would not come until 1986. Uh, and and so this is this is again very fascinating to see how in retrospect how things developed or didn't develop. In this case, uh, this extension never happened, and instead the U.S. Mint went the route of the American Eagle, which uh, is much beloved in the hobby community, investor community today. Uh, I personally don't own any of the American Arts Gold medallions, but one day. One day I will have to get the Mark Twain medal. I believe that's a half ounce um, and um, could be an ounce. But either way, uh, Mark Twain being Missouri boy, I got to have that. There's some other artist honored, uh, Grant Wood. There's Louis Armstrong, musician. Uh, there, there's some there's some fun. Robert Frost, the poet. Helen Hayes, poet, I believe. Uh, there's some fascinating range of um American figures that were honored in the original series. Uh, the proposed extension would have honored Ansel Adams, Buddy Holly, Ernest Hemingway, John James Audubon, Henry Fonda, Henry David Thoreau, uh, I.M. Pei, architect, Paul Robeson. Um, it didn't happen. And um, part of me thinks, oh, what a shame. And part of me says, well, you know, no great loss. There's, there's, um, the, the American Arts Gold Medallion Program is 
sort of a redheaded stepchild in the hobby in the sense of you can often acquire them at prices fairly close to the melt value. They're just they're just not widely collected like the American Eagles. They're not they're not in demand. And some of them, you know, that's very American designs, American figures, uh, but for whatever reason, they never resonated as uh, some of the others. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, I, I don't know if it's their, it's got to be their non-monetary um, component, you know, the fact that they're not denominated. Um but uh, in any event, uh, it's a it's an interesting series, fascinating series, and uh, that was the big story. There was a secondary story that says that all ten pieces in the one ounce and half ounce American Arts Gold Medallion series will be available from the U.S. Mint for like a two week period. This was um, the reopening of the program after it was uh, supposed to end, just to try to boost those sales numbers up again, and. Um, you know, this references the Leach um, amendment or, or proposition and also said that Mint officials believe there were potential customers who could not reach order uh, takers because of telephone problems. So, hey, maybe that was part of it, too. Gosh, the U.S. Mint having ordering problems. Never heard that story before in the hobby. <laughs> no, nah, that's got to be fallacy. Anyway, so uh, that's that's what jumped out to me. I always love, you know, exploring some of these different numismatic byways and highways. What uh, what did you key in on for that issue? Well, since we have on the letters page, since we have kind of an international flair going on right here, the uh, top letter was under the big banner headline, Olympic Marketers Advertising Annoys Readers. This letter starts off, I am disturbed by what appears to be a fallacy concerning the cutoff date in the sale of U.S. Olympic coins. I bought several of these gold and silver coins primarily as an investment because of their low mintage and even lower sales figures, the latter presumably because of recent weaknesses in gold and silver bullion prices. My late purchases of these coins were stimulated by declarations in many advertisements that coins unsold by January 18, 1985 would be returned to the mint and melted. Remember the ads with pictures of melting coins? However, it now appears that many commercial outlets of these coins, which have advertised these very declarations in Coin World, have not returned the coins to the mint not sold by January 18th. They continue to sell these coins by extension of deadline or other ploys. It seems to me that if the government uses commercial outlets to sell its coins at government set prices, then all coins not sold by a stated cutoff date should be returned, especially when the cutoff date is used by these outlets to stimulate sales. I'd be interested to hear your comments and those by other readers on what appears to be false advertising which is aided and abetted by the U.S. government itself. That letter comes to us from Thomas Wilder of Cambridge, Massachusetts. The response from the editor. The secondary market for U.S. Olympic coins has begun. The U.S. Treasury Department has no say in the secondary market for any coin, and dealers and collectors would justifiably rise up in arms if the government tried to interfere in any way. The official, quote-unquote, official marketers of Olympic coins were dealers with enough money to buy large quantities of the coins, 
although the Treasury could, and in one case did, though temporarily, remove that official status for certain reasons. The dealers bought full rights to the Olympic coins. They purchased just as did every collector. The dealers own the coins and can do with them what they will, just as they do with proof sets that they've bought since quantity restrictions were lifted. The coins that are to be melted are the unsold specimens, as reported in Coin World. The coins in the hands of the dealers have been sold by the government. And that's from the editor. So kind of interesting right there. Sometimes perception and reality can, can be a little strange. It goes back to like the authorized bulk purchaser programs of today and that type of thing. But, uh, you know, collectors don't like the idea of being misled. And in some cases, it looked like they were to a degree misled by the commercial outlets. There you have it. Yeah, the, that <laughs> that's always a touchy subject. People want to get uh, in on the chance to make that profit themselves. I mean, we see that with the U.S. Mint today and order limits or not and ordering problems. You know, I jokingly made reference to order problems a moment ago. It's, um, you know, <laughs> if if one took out all the people who were intent on buying a coin or metal to flip immediately to those market makers, the secondary market uh, people, one might not have this issue, but th this is an, a, a reality that affects uh, whether it's sneakers or video games or, you know, there's all sorts of collectible areas where you see folks mobilize to capitalize and make a quick buck. So uh, it, it is what it is. I'm not um, not condoning it or, or decrying it. It's just uh, recognizing it as reality. Uh, the reality is, though, that time moves on and we need to get to the trivia question. And uh, so last episode, I asked you about the assay commission. And particularly, I mentioned that there is a group related to the assay commission, and this group has issued medals. I want to know the name of the group and when was the last medal issued. Uh, you, If you know when the last medal was issued, then you'll know when this group last met. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Like most cases, no, I have no clue what you're talking about. I, I just know of assay commission medals, and I thought they were all um, put out by the assay commission and didn't know there was any other group there. So you need to enlighten me. So, yes, and I think we've – have we even explored the assay commission uh, medals themselves in a previous episode? Anyway, I think we have. I know we've done inaugural medals. Um, so the assay commission itself, as, as noted earlier um, – you know, in the episode, last episode, was um, existed until 1980. 1977 was the last year for public membership, and or that was the year public membership was just denied or rescinded or whatever, and 1980 was the last year of the Assay Commission. There was a group that formed called the Old Time Assay Commission Society, OTAX, and this group, to be eligible for this group, you had to have been a an assay commission member in the past. You couldn't just show up and say, oh, I want to join OTAX as an official member. I mean, maybe they had like auxiliary membership or, you know, whatever. But, you know, the idea was you were only eligible 
for OTAX if you had served on a assay commission. Well, obviously, if there's no more assay commissions in existence after 1980, um, time marches forward. And, you know, a, as I mentioned in last week's episode, one of the members was Harvey Stack. Uh, Harvey just died recently, I think. Um, it was and, January of... Uh... Two huh? years ago? Last year, was it? Last year, was it January last year? Wow, okay. Well, yeah. I, to me, that's recent still, you know. Um, it, I was thinking this year, but yeah, it, it's... Uh, so, understandably, the, the membership dwindled, and and but OTAX issued medals themselves to celebrate their gatherings. They would gather at uh, A&A shows, the big annual confab, and the last gathering was held in 2012, that was, of course, the last year that OTAX medals were issued. So you can collect assay commission medals. You can collect assay commission society medals if one chooses. Um, and and the um, OTAX medals often have a uh, the designs, according to what I've seen, uh, a very much piggyback on the designs for the ANA shows where the meetings were held. Um, I, I found an interesting lot sold by Heritage that had been uh, 12, 12 medals owned by Eric P. Newman, St. Louis, late St. Louis numismatist, and those sold in 2018 for $264, 12 bronze medals, uh, or 18, something like 16 medals. So really, you know, that's barely like 15, not even $20 a medal. Uh, very interesting area um, and certainly something that probably not too many people are tuned into as uh, as a area to collect. So we're talking about shipwrecks. We have to talk about the Atocha in the trivia question. The Guinness Book of World Records has designated it as the most valuable shipwreck recovered. I think there's some competition these days for some other stuff that's swirling out there, but let's just go with that. Let's presume that Guinness, uh, at least for now, is the authority. So I want to know how many tons of gold and silver were on this wreck officially, not talking all the contraband unrecorded stuff that was you know, it wasn't recorded because they were trying to avoid the uh, 20% tax that uh, would would accompany it or be applied to it. How many tons, tons, T-O-N-S, of gold and silver and how many pounds of emeralds? I've seen various reports uh, re regarding the value of this wreck, 250 to 500 million. A lot of them settled in on the $400 million mark. I don't know if that's in today's dollars, or, or I think that's 1985 dollars. I don't know, uh, but in any event, it's it's a great story, fantastic, important shipwreck, and um, so you'll have to think about that as you listen to the interview with Carol Tedesco. Uh, just you know, uh, keep your ears open and and uh, think about the possibilities for the answer. Here is our interview. The Coin World Podcast is so delighted today to be joined by shipwreck and Spanish colonial numismatic author, Carol Tedesco. Thank you so much for being here today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. 
Hey, uh, as I was saying moments ago, when I found out about you and and your career and and your interest in this, it made so much sense. Uh, somebody uh, as myself, who I, you know, I grew up in the '80s. Uh, the Atocha wreck was discovered, I think, when I was around five or six. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I remember reading about that in you know Boys Life or one of the, some of those kids magazines and and other you know mainline you know a, a, you know adult news magazines sort of you know general interest publication so i've i've always been fascinated by the romance and lore of shipwrecks and the atocha in particular and i think you were as well uh and that's how you got drawn into it but maybe you can before we delve deep into you you've authored treasure coins of the nuestra senora de atocha and the santa margarita and uh, Untangling the Record, a Contemporary Review of Potosi and Lima Mint Coins and Assayer History from the Mint Openings up to 1622. Before we get into that stuff, I want to go all the way back to when you got interested in this, how you learned of this, and your path there, because you're a publicist, you're a diver, you're a photographer, uh, you've done all sorts of fascinating things in this. But what brings it to our attention, of course, is the shipwreck side of things. So how, how did you get exposed to these stories and interested in them and then be able to turn that into a career? Yeah, it's funny. First, I feel so ancient as you're describing my bona fides because it took a long time to get from there to here, of course. Um, it actually started for me when I was a teenager living in San Antonio, Texas, and I worked uh, in high school at a coffee shop and I was getting very interested in photography. And I had two customers who came in every day. They owned an insurance company right down the street from the coffee shop. And they were absolutely fascinated with the search for the Atosha. It hadn't been discovered yet. And they would come in every day and just regale me with stories. And so it just sparked my imagination. And it was always in the back of my head that that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to go look for sunken shipwreck treasures. But after high school, you know, I started working with my photography. I worked uh, in the, the live concert industry. I worked as a DJ. So it was very um, promotional and entertainment driven. And that was my life for a while. I didn't start college till I was um, in my middle 20s and was studying radio, TV, film. But then as more and more, I became enamored of ancient things and research, um, I switched my major to archeology. span And long story short, I, I wanted to learn how to dive. I wanted to look for shipwrecks and treasure, but I was really afraid of being in water over my head. And um, eventually I found somebody who would give me private diving lessons and my desire overcame my terror and I learned how to dive and then attended an underwater archaeology field school in the Netherlands Antilles. And that was taught by archaeologist Duncan Mathewson and conservator James Sinclair. They were two of the Atosha team. Now, by the time I got to that point, the main pile, the, the primary cultural deposit of the Atosha had already been discovered. That was discovered in 1985. But the field school later led to the offer of a job in Key West where some of the work 
involved helping to clean and curate two intact chests of Atosha silver coins. And that was the beginning of my relationship with the coins. And so you really didn't have any sort of numismatic background at that time? None. And even in the beginning, um, when I first moved to Key West in 1992, my focus was on I wanted to be underwater taking pictures and looking for shipwreck artifacts. That's what I wanted to do. Um, but also part of my work when I first moved there was helping to produce an Atosha Treasures traveling exhibit. So that's where my past PR experience came in. So over years of doing the exhibit, uh, more and more and more coins came into my hands and more and more they set my imagination on fire. And so I did eventually get to do the things I dreamed of doing in the industry, you know, diving for sunken treasures, underwater documentary photography, and then these other things I never imagined, which was um, the numismatics, research and writing and launching my own company. But over time, very gradually, the silver coins, the Spanish colonial coins of that period became my specialty. And because I also became obsessed with tracking features and characteristics, I learned a, a fair amount about designing coin databases and customizing them for whatever shipwreck project was at hand and its unique collections. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, and very much um, into the details as uh, we'll explore a little bit later. Uh, how many how many coins from the Atosha do you think you uh, observed uh, over over your career? Oh my goodness! Well, you know, I was working with the uh, cleaning and conservation of two chests, and you know they would have in the neighborhood. Oh, three to four thousand coins each. You know, the, the, the chests. Uh, I should describe them. So uh, they were, the silver coins were packed in rosewood boxes and they were just nailed together, just, you know, planks of wood nailed together. And then being underwater for so long, the, the silver reacted with the salt water and um, they became fused together. Mm -hmm. And so they're just big clumps and you really can't see what's in them, you know, until you start cleaning them. So I worked on those two chests. And then as we were touring with the, with the exhibit, other people who had coins were bringing them to us. So I was seeing other people's coins. So to, an to answer your question, thousands and thousands. Uh, and, and, and the joy that one experiences is holding a shipwreck treasure coin, does that ever fade? No, never. It is a, it's a historic wallop. But wouldn't there be a point in your experience here where you were overwhelmed by so many of these coins? <laughs> no, I can't say overwhelmed because I guess my first experiences were with masses of them. And there's nothing like seeing them. You know, we're used to, people are used to seeing coins, collectible coins in sleeves right? Where the data has been collected and you can't take a bunch of coins out of sleeves and, and put them on a table and, and run your hands over them because they'll get all mixed up and they might not be so easy to put back where they belong. But when they're first being cleaned, you know, before they go into curation, there's just, you know, a pile of silver coins and it's beautiful. And you can't just, you can't dismiss 
the tragic history behind so much of it. At the same time, there's such appreciation for the history and the beauty as well. And to me, that's the attraction because of the history, the fact that you're hanging on to things that are, you know, years old. This is like something that, you know, was just minted just decades ago. We're talking centuries ago. Centuries, centuries. But, you know, it's so funny you should say that because back in 2000, um, a couple of partners and I were subcontractors on the Santa Margarita shipwreck site, the sister ship to the Atosha. Well, they call it the sister ship. It really wasn't a sister ship. But um, so we were working and we were, you know, bringing up artifacts. And one of the partners was from the UK. And some of us were ooing and eyeing over this beautiful artifact. And he said, you know, I live in England. My house is older than this. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, touche. <laughs> so there's, there's that perspective too. Uh, so I want to ask you, you mentioned uh, Santa Margarita. You've been involved in, um, I, I, one of the ones I found most interesting besides the, the Atocha, um, uh, the Portuguese shipwreck, San Jose. Can you explain what that is and, and how you got uh, pulled in to do some work on that and, and what that work was? Sure thing. So the San Jose was a Portuguese carrick. And it sank in 1622, but it sank um, off of Mozambique. So it was following a different route entirely than our Florida 1622 fleet shipwrecks. So my first introduction to the Sao Jose was through Odyssey Marine Exploration, because they were putting together a presentation of the coins for the Discovery Group. And the Discovery Group was Arquinatus Worldwide. So my first work was with Odyssey, and that was to do an evaluation of the coins and um, a write up some reports about the history behind them that they could present to the public. And then later, I was approached by, by Arquinatus because they were about to begin a division of the treasures with the government of the Republic of Mozambique. And the government wanted an impartial expert who could look at the coins in question and help them divide them fairly. Because of course there's no two alike. So it's it's apples and kumquats, right? You have to be able to say, okay, this coin is special because of these features. This coin is special because of this, these features. This would be a fair trade or a fair split. Very interesting. What what I find um amazing about all this is uh, you've uh, did this take you to portugal or mozambique or was this um no i didn't get to go i was so disappointed <laughs> <laughs> no they sent they, they sent the coins to florida oh, okay and I, I i examined them in florida and at one point we talked about becoming to mozambique and we were just never able to make it happen i would have loved to have gone oh bummer but but you've done so have all your dives been pretty much florida or you mentioned netherlands and Chile's with uh, mr Mathewson. Where, where all have has your diving taken you to look for treasure oh pretty much the the, the diving part is the florida shipwrecks and guam i worked on the pillar project in guam back in the mid 90s which was wonderful. Uh, it was a search for a Manila galleon. It went down near Cocos Island off of Guam and mm -hmm. the main structure has never been found to this date. 
And this particular team, which was based out of Australia, worked on it for some years. But basically, the terrain there, if I can describe it accurately, if you can imagine like giant stair steps or plateaus, so you're at 35 feet and then there's a ledge and all of a sudden you're at 70 or 80 feet and then another ledge that brings you down to over 100 feet. So it's possible the ship grounded and then tumbled down into the depths. When I was there, we were diving with, with tanks. Um, later, they went into mixed gases after the year I worked there and um, some, some heavy technical diving. They were following the trail into deeper water. And um, I think essentially uh, either the contract ran out or maybe the money ran out or both. The, the funding in Australia is handled differently than it is in the US. So in the US, if you're raising money for a project like this, you could sell yearly shares and people would get a share. People who invested for this year would get a share of this year's recoveries. And it's not being found then, and it's found next year. Well, you, if you're not next, you know, an a investor in next year, you're out of luck, right? Pretty much, yes. That's how it works. In Australia, when people would buy into a project like that, it's forever. So you get so many shares. And the only way you can raise more money is if the partners agree to dilute the shares. Ah. So I think that's what ended up happening. And I have no idea if any more work is planned for the Pillar Project in Guam, but it was a wonderful place to work and dive. I loved it. Well, you you touch upon the financial aspect, and I I I, I want to gloss over that a little bit because, um, you know, shipwrecks they're subject to litigation and all that. It's very expensive to to do the 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 work, but you know, as as fascinating as that is, I think the historical aspect is what. Um, really grabs our attention most. And and I point to a, a passage in the um, book about the Atosha where you say, because coins of this period were struck using handheld dies engraved by skilled artisans, they can feel like tantalizing little mystery novels, succinctly describing aspects of a story, but often teasing us with hints of mysterious hidden chapters whose revelations have been obscured by the passage of time. And you are the one to read those little novels and discern the who done it. And and that's what you have done, especially with untangling the record. I can't help but think uh that's also an unconscious callback to the story of untangling that pile of of silver coins. Um what has been the most challenging aspect of this putting together the pieces of uh, truth, that, you know, pulling apart all the the research, some of its speculation and putting it back together into something that is uh, verifiable and, and uh, really can rest on the bookshelves with accuracy decades after some of the research that um, is, is really still prevalent in misinformation that still uh, unfortunately dominates. That is a long question. <laughs> Don't ask me to repeat it. <laughs> okay, I won't ask you to repeat it. Um, I would say that the challenges, the challenges have changed over time, as you can imagine, because when I first started working with the treasures, it was pre-internet. And anyone who's old enough to remember doing research pre-internet can appreciate 
that just finding experts and expert publications could be such a challenge, mm. a, a true challenge. And I was working in the shipwreck industry. I wasn't connected to the numismatic world. I wasn't imagining that I would be connected to the numismatic world. I was just looking for answers. And let's see, I'm trying to think of how, how the questions really arose. I started seeing discrepancies in the publications, the reference publications and searching for answers. And so probably one of the biggest challenges was availability of information, time, the time it took to locate experts, find answers, and the long shelf life of misinformation, because it doesn't just disappear as you're finding correct information, or correct data. Um, and you 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 say you know, that I did this and and I did a lot of work, you know, collecting data, interpreting data, but I couldn't have done any of it without um, several of Latin America and North America's most prominent historic research historians and numismatists. And I say first and foremost would be Eduardo Darjant Chameau, because he had done considerable work on the Hodesi Mint and the Lima Mint, I'm sorry, the Lima Mint and the La Plata Mint. That's where some of the questions and confusion, the early confusion came from. And also Jorge Proctor, who is just a formidable historic research expert. So people, you know, experts had been gathering data and researching data for many years. It was getting the data together and assembling it. And that probably, I don't know if we had would have gotten to that point if it had not been for the launching of the International Conventions of Historians and Numismatists that started in 2016. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. I do want to have you tell the story. The, the most interesting or, as you say, entertaining misinformation to become attached uh, or, you know, really fixed in the numismatic lore comes out of the Potosi Mint and an assayer there um, who's, uh, there's there's quite a story. It's, it's a, the cinematic side of me is saddened <laughs> that it's not true, but you, you were able to, again, with the help of others, you were able to dispel this myth. Can you explain what that myth is, if, if you know what I'm picking, if you pick up on what I'm talking about? I, I do. I'm picking up what you're throwing down, for sure. Um, and I did get a little bit ahead of myself, I guess, talking about uh, Lima and La Plata. But you're right. You're absolutely right, Jeff. People didn't want to hear the truth behind this legend because the legend is so fun and entertaining. Um, but it wasn't quite right. So there was an assayer who used the initial T, and he was attached to the Potosi Mint. His name was Juan Jimenez de Tapia. And he began working at the Potosi Mint in 1618. And he was still there after the sinking of the 1622 fleet. And his coins are known and collected because of certain anomalies that are prevalent on them. And those are reversals. Um, on a Spanish colonial coin, the reverse will have a cross. And in the quarters of the cross, you'll have the Lions of Leon and the Castles of Castile. 
should be lions lower left and upper right. He would reverse them. He would invert them. Or I'm saying he, the die carver, would reverse them, invert them. Um, there would be reversals and of the Habsburg shield, certain quadrants of the shield. There would be reverse letters, reverse P for the mint mark, reverse P for Philippus. And so the list just goes on and on of all the anomalies on the coins with the initial T. And way back, I want to say it was the 1980s, um, an author, Tori McLean, wrote an article called The Case of the Dyslexic Mint Worker. And he discusses Juan Jimenez de Tapia and the many errors on the coins. And he doesn't say that he that Tapia carved the dice himself. He doesn't say that these anomalies only appeared on his coins, Tapia coins. And he didn't say that Tapia was executed on, on account of the errors and, and the anomalies. But it was such an interesting story. And you know, the rumor is like playing a game of telephone. It goes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And all of a sudden you have this legend that Juan Jimenez de Tapia was dyslexic and he was the one carving the dies. And so it's only on his coins and he was beheaded on account of it. And of course there were executions at the Potosi Mint, but not, he was not one of them. And it, those appear, those occurred around the 1650s attached to a scandal in the mint with the debasement of silver. Okay, so so the the blending of fact and fiction uh, is is still fascinating. All that um, you you lay this all out though in these two works, especially the untangling the record. Um, I, I guess the question for the casual observer is, why is it important? What does this tell us about this era? of coinage and how does it inform how people collect these today? I think you know, I can only speak from knowledge and experience with Spanish colonial coins. And I know that coin study and collection is a, a, a huge field of interest for many people with ancients and all different types and periods of coins and even paper money. I didn't even know about paper money until recently that it was a thing. Um, so what is important is it's history and we owe it to ourselves and to um, those who come after us to have an accurate historic record. Perfect. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I kind of no. That's fine. <laughs> you know, this is not meant to be a gotcha. I just it's it's like you know some of these things are necessarily lost to time. I think you mentioned there was a flood that wiped out a bunch of records in the 1630s or something. So it's 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 this is almost like a numismatic CSI, or you know, you're putting the pieces of the puzzle back together uh, while you know. Uh, in you know looking at uh looking at it upside down i mean it's very challenging and it's very um commendable and and you know it's respectable i just i just wondered what uh the big takeaway here is and i think that um you know at the end of the day it provides an ongoing wealth of opportunity for further uh, understanding of how things were made and the timelines of things and 
and some of this you can trace uh, rarity to. You know, there was there was only a certain assayer in office, if you will, uh, or around a certain time. So there's certain pieces are rarer than others. Um, you know, to me, that's it's all fascinating, and I I don't I didn't ask that question to to you know put you on the spot, but to sort of allow for some of that thought to to come out if that's I mean that's certainly what I see is, is that wrong or is that right no you're absolutely right and um you you expressed it far better than I did misinformation has as I said in the book has a unfortunately long shelf life and so it's very important to search for the correct historic information and correct the record, untangle the record. And it's not something that, that, like you said, the information isn't just sitting there in a stack somewhere. There was a historic flood in Potosi in 1628 and the records were lost. So in many cases, it is a, um, an instance where somebody, a research archival expert, finds a reference to an assayer working in a particular mint, but he finds it in an unrelated document. So it's slow and um, it's incomplete, but as time goes on, it is becoming more complete. And to me, so another thing to me, I would think as a researcher, as a lot of the material you're dealing with doesn't have the luxury of something we take for granted these days, and that is a date. Knowing that uh, some of these items are not dated, I would think that would make it even more challenging to try to be historically accurate. Right. Date, well, dating the coins, of course, because um, in Potosi, Potosi, Bolivia, uh, Peru at that time, Viceroyalty of Peru, they didn't put dates on the coins until 1617. And in Mexico, it was 1607. So before that, you have assayer initials, and sometimes you have access to their names and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have access to the years in which they worked. Sometimes you don't. And as you know, in many cases, these individuals were also alternating. So you have these coins, for example, you have um, L, a sayer using the initial L and a sayer using the initial B and B goes away, L comes in and just strikes his L over the B. And then B comes back and strikes B over the L. So there's a lot of untangling to do. And uh, you mentioned earlier the uh, international uh, symposiums uh, and how important they have been to helping untangle the record. I believe there was a 2016, there was 2021, I think that was Cartagena. Uh, there's one on tap for this year. Let's close our discussion today and, and set that up for, for anybody who's interested in that and, and knowing uh, about this gathering. Um, is it Santo Domingo, I think? Yes, Santo Domingo will be the fourth International Convention of Historians and Numismatists. Uh, so Potosi was 2016, Arequipa near Lima was 2018, um, Cartagena was a year late because of COVID, and now we have um, Santo Domingo. So Santo Domingo, June 28th through July 2nd, 2023, there will be experts presenting papers of unpublished research, social events, tours, 
Uh, they're fantastic, but most important of all is the meeting of minds from all over coming together and sharing their research. And anyone interested can get more information. You can go to Facebook. There's a Santo Domingo 2023 Facebook page. And there is now in, in progress a website going up at santodomingo2023.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for exploring these topics with us today. Uh, fun little books and fascinating. Oh, Jeff, can I interrupt you for just a second? Yes. If anybody wants my books, all they have to do is go to my website. I have links set up at caroltedesco.com. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, yes, we we appreciate that. And we certainly hope somebody who's uh, heard this and gets excited goes and gets those books. They're fun, certainly. Um, you know, the, the very detailed look at all the different assayers and some of the some of the issues uh, of that whole uh, that whole field. Very cool. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this has been a treat. I'm jealous that you've been uh, able to do all these cool things with shipwrecks. The you know eight year old me that learned about the Atocha back in the day um, is is just pleased as punch, and uh, the current version is pleased as punch as well that I get, uh, we got to speak with you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff and Larry, for having me on your show. And that was our interview with Carol Tedesco. Boy, she brought it for this interview. Really fun person, fascinating story. And um, kind of, uh, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like her, <laughs> in a sense. I want to go uh, go explore the shipwrecks and, and uh, work with the people that are finding this stuff. How cool was that? Definitely so. And I mean, these are books that you absolutely have to have. I mean, there is page after page of great information, reference information, basically just understanding how these these coins are graded differently than they would be at a third party grader. And, uh, you know, the differences and the, the nuances and all the research that went into there and, uh, you know, correcting the records and all that. Those are all found on the pages of Carol's books. And you've got to have those. And she gave you the information on how to get them. So we heartily encourage you to do that. We thank you for listening to our podcast here as we uh, take this journey through this great hobby that we have here and continue to provide you with some great guests who share their information, share their knowledge with you, because sharing is caring and sharing is what it's all about right there. So we thank you once again for taking your time and joining us here. And in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.